Welcome to another Pro Video Coalition podcast. I think we uh, we missed last week, probably because there wasn't any news or anything going on, or there may have been and we just ignored it or forgot it or were asleep. But this week we're back with something different because we're not going to talk about the news unless you consider Codex news. And I don't think it is, but we have uh, Damien is on the other end of the line as usual because Damien doesn't know anything about Codex. So he's here to learn. That's true. I I, I think I left my Codex knowledge in 2012. Well, I wish I didn't know about them, but you have no choice these days. So we thought, wait, who do we know that knows everything there is to know about Codex, including like everything? And, and then we, we, couldn't, we couldn't get that guy, so we got Michael. No, we did get my, my, Michael. Michael <laughs> is that kidding. one guy. It's him. It's We're talking true. about Codex? Oh, man, I'm on the wrong call. <laughs> oh, all right, hang up. Podcast over. I mean, Codex is one of those things that, as a as an editor, or not even an editor, but as a as a video professional these days, you have to be familiar with whether you're choosing the camera based around what it can shoot, or you're deciding how to handle editorial based on the media that you've gotten in. It is one of those um, necessary evils of film and video production in this day and age. I believe. What well, that is that a safe assumption? Would you say, Mr. Thomas? I'd say that's a, a very safe assumption, and and I and I think what a lot of people overlook is that if you're looking to get a job as an editor, there's going to be tons of competition. But every single post facility or group of editors are always going to need someone who's technical. So if you can come in on a technical level, and then when there's an opening for an editor, because usually you promote from within you're now fast-tracked to get that potential editing job instead of fighting it out with everyone else who's submitting resumes and hitting the, the hiring person up uh, online. So it, it's actually a kind of a backdoor and to getting a job in the industry as well. Well, even if you're just become, even if you are already an editor, or you, uh, you know, have somehow skipped a lot of the technical side of it, and you are editing. I mean, there are times when you are just handed footage, or you are asked questions about, you know, what should we convert this to, or what did they shoot this in, or what is an MKV file, or just, you know, things like that that are just really, yeah, technical crapola that you just have to know these days if you want to be able to, um, to make it in the in the industry. I will let, uh, if you would like, Mr. Damien, what uh, you you kind of brought up the discussion of this of, of Codex the other day. Like, what on your end? What would be the yeah. question you would so, ask? You know, our, I, our expert. I, I, if you've listened to the podcast before, you know I'm more on the visual effects side. That's my world, and so uh, you know I I joke that I haven't really messed around with Codex since 2012, but it's kind of true because. I mainly deal with EXR image sequences and they kind of solidified a few years ago. I still have to deal with raw codecs and conversion, things like that. But for the most part, I don't deal with editing codecs, but I did make the transition and I know I'm going to, we probably have about half the uh, listeners drop off at this point, but I did make the transition to working primarily on Windows workstations. Uh, It was a requirement for me just because I needed NVIDIA support and it has been incredibly difficult just to get video to work for me because ProRes, and, and this is something that I, I would love you guys to clear up if you know. I know you're a, a diehard Mac guy, so maybe I'm not going to get anything out of Scott, but M- Michael might be able to help me out here. Is I don't speak, you'll only hurt yourself. Now, um, the. The problem is, like, sometimes it seems like I have ProRes access in some apps, and then I'll go to either one of my other systems, or, you know, uh, I know there's some licensing for ProRes, some can encode, uh, some can read it, and but it just becomes incredibly difficult to get a lot of I.O. done on the Windows side, and it, it seems like it shouldn't be. And we're not allowed to install QuickTime Player anymore, because that's got security fall, flaws. So that's kind of really what... Uh, hit in my head is like, man, I, I really need to get this codec thing sorted out again. Well, okay, hang on. Let me, I want Michael to jump on the Windows um, discussion first, or not first, second. First, I want to answer a question because we put this out on Twitter. It said, hey, we're talking about codecs. Well, well Scott, know, Scott, do, do we need to, you know, start from the beginning as yeah, to what a codec yeah. is and well, whatnot? That's, or? that's what I was going to jump in because there was a mention of like explaining wrappers versus codecs, and that's always a, uh, a a tricky thing. And I And I will use my simple little... I think, Michael, yours is a can of beans. Mine is always a sandwich analogy. Is that the right word, analogy? 
where you've got a uh, – someone says, give me a sandwich. You have to know what kind of sandwich. What kind of bread do you want and what kind of, say, meat or insides of the sandwich do you want? And, and uh, video files are similar to that in that a video file, a QuickTime movie, for instance, if someone says, give me a QuickTime movie, you have to know what kind of QuickTime movie. If you think about the wrapper – as being the bread, which is the .mov, the .mxf, the .r3d, if you will, the .mp4. That's the wrapper. That's the bread of the sandwich. And the codec, the compressor decompressor that sort of like runs everything, is the is what's inside. That's the meat of the sandwich. That would be the ProRes. That would be the DNxHD. That would be the H.264. That would be any other any other number of things. Those are some that we um, encounter quite often. But I always thought the sandwich. The sandwich comparison is perfect because bread is the wrapper, MXF, MOV, MP4. The meat is the codec, H.264, ProRes, DNxHD, DN, um, and that type of thing. That's the simplest way I've ever figured out how to explain a digital video file in a, in a codec, if you will. And then the iframes would be the small bits of moldy cheese within the blue cheese. Sorry. Uh, no. Possibly. If you like, but you don't put blue cheese on a sandwich. What's the matter with you? Have you it's ever had a, a blue cheese burger? It's amazing. Oh, wait, that's actually you can. Because a burger is a sandwich. See, that, it, let's talk about that for a second. No. A burger technically <laughs> is a sandwich. And is a hot dog technically a sandwich? Ooh, I don't know. That's getting in, in That's getting there. metaphysical at that point. So, Is that explanation a good one, Michael, when you talk about, you know, literally like, because the codec, I guess, inside of the wrapper is is a whole other little thing. Right. Right, and and it, I'll kind of echo a little of what you said, and I'll just put my own spin on it because I'm I'm asked to kind of dictate this quite often. Um, just just like uh, they sound, wrappers encompass the codec, just like you wrap a present. Uh, commonly, you see this when you look at a file on your desktop, right? You'll see a, a .mp4 or a .mov. Uh, this is the OS telling you that the uh, what wrapper the codec is in, uh, so you know what player to use. Right, the wrapper triggers the right player, and the player reads the codec. Um, an example: some of this, players can read multiple can read multiple wrappers. Correct, correct. Uh, a common example, uh, let's say YouTube, would be an H.264 codec and an MP4 wrapper. Um, and and what's important about that is is YouTube is pretty forgiving, right? You can upload just about anything. But a lot of times, if you're editing for somebody who is putting stuff on a playout server or using it for broadcast, you have to adhere to their deliverable specs, which outline the encoding pattern, uh, the, the data rate, the frame size, the audio codec. Uh, and so that's why it's really important to know codecs because you have to be able to build those deliverables and not waste a lot of time redoing it over and over. Yeah. All right. So let's let's uh, expand on that for a second. For YouTube in general, let's say you were going to upload something to YouTube. You could take a ProRes.mov file and upload that to YouTube because they will accept that as an upload format, which they will then re-encode to things playable on the web. And that would probably be a very large file, depending on what you're working on. But you can also upload a H.264.mp4 file as well to YouTube because they can also take that particular file format, that particular codec and wrapper. So it's as a place to deliver to, it can take lots of things. Whereas in the broadcast world, you'll, you'll get often get a spec sheet that will have a bunch of different options for, you know, we can take this or this or that. And it may not be a bunch, it may just be one or two that are very specific in what they will take or they will be rejected. So broadcast meaning you must adhere to some specific things, whereas YouTube can take a lot more uh, delivered to it. And, and, and that to was your the, point, yeah. go ahead. Damian. I was just going to say that was the original design philosophy. That was the big deal about YouTube before Google bought them was, hey, we wanted, it was a bunch of guys in a garage saying we want to find a way to easily upload video to the web because it's way too hard. And ultimately, that's what set YouTube apart and ended up making it a standard that we know it today. Yeah, and I think Vimeo can also say take a ProRes, for example. Um, you know, I think, yeah. I think it's just a matter of of wherever this destination is on the web, being set up to say, all right, you know, I see this file incoming. That's a ProRes.mov. I I can read it and do with it what I need to do, which is usually make these playable, streamable format, playable, streamable versions that you watch in your browser yeah. or on your phone. And if I can dispel some myths, I I run into Ooh, this yes. all the time. Um, do I see upload. another? Uh, wait, there is a five things episode about myths. Five yes. things. Yes, I've, I've actually addressed this. Series. 
Yeah. Uh, I've actually addressed this several times, and and let me dispel some of those YouTube myths right now. I upload ProRes files to YouTube on a weekly basis, period. You will get a better image. Why? Because YouTube will always flip, they'll always transcode, they'll always convert whatever you upload into their flavor, into their right. H.264, or I think VP9 is what they use for 4K stuff. You cannot get around that. No, you don't have a buddy that knows how to do it. No, you can't click a box <laughs> and you can do it. No, YouTube will always convert to a format they like. Now, you're probably saying, well, why can't I just play a native format? Well, when you're uploading a ProRes file, that's a fat file. That's not going to be viewable on all devices, nor can people stream it in real time. Also, YouTube doesn't want to spend the extra compute time on servers to transcode your five terabyte file, I'm exaggerating, but your your huge file uh, to convert it into something small. So if they ask for you to upload something small, they don't get dinged as much on the servers and the electricity uh, and you get instant gratification or near to it. Uh, if you want the best quality though, export out of your editor in a a high-res codec, like a ProRes or DNX, or it, maybe what codec you shot it in. Upload and wait. Wait the upload time to get it to YouTube. YouTube will then take it, YouTube will then flip it, and you'll have a better quality image because you're not going through that extra conversion of creating that H.264 locally before you upload. Okay. Does uh, YouTube accept DNX HD? I've yes. never tried. Okay. Okay. I've yes. got a, I've got a, uh, it's not a dumb question, but it's a question on that. So I know in some cases, like if you have an H.264 and you're maybe using Adobe Meteor encoder and you're encoding back to H.264, but maybe at a, a, a different data rate, uh, you, you don't want it to re-encode new uh, iframes, right? New uh, image keyframes in the way it compresses temporally. Is there any way... Uh, you can avoid, like, is there any, could you get close enough to the native thing that YouTube is encoding to that you, uh, you're going to reduce any potential quality loss? I mean, obviously, if it, you're dealing with a format that doesn't have intra frames, uh, that wouldn't be an issue, right? But I'm just curious. Whatever you upload, YouTube's going to flip. So what you can do uh, locally is you can do a rewrap, right? If the essence isn't changing, but if you're looking at reducing the data rate, that has to go through a whole new uh, re-encode process. Wait, Adobe pa does have- Define essence. We hear the that essence. word a lot used when sure. we're talking about codecs and deliverables and making video files. Essence and codec are essentially the same thing. They're just uh, different ways of phrasing it. Um, Makes so you sound if, smarter if you use essence. <laughs> polysyllabic words do that. <laughs> Just like accents, Damien. That's right. <laughs> I didn't have one anymore. Intermediate versus mezzanine codec. We'll get to that in a second. Oh. Uh, so what you, if you're looking to reduce the data rate of a, let's say, H.264, it's going to have to go through a recompression process. Uh, some tools like uh, Adobe Media Encoder and Premiere and the old Final Cut 7, which is now coming back into vogue because of Parasite, oh, uh, have sakes. things called smart rendering. Right, which can selectively only transcode what needs to be transcoded uh, without doing the entire thing. Uh, but that's on a very select basis. Right. And you've got to set it up right. Right. And often you lose that ability when you start using uh, GPU versus CPU enabled effects or layering effects. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Because then it becomes a whole well, new piece of video. Mm -hmm. Let's let's go back to that uh, other question we were talking about, which is Windows, and particularly, I think there was a mention of ProRes on Windows, because yeah. there's another another myth. Because at one point in the history of the world, there was no ProRes on Windows, right? And then it slowly began to trickle in through various uh, manufacturers and vendors that had had leased it, and I think the big ProRes on Windows breakthrough probably came when Adobe was able to license ProRes encoding on Windows, as in making a ProRes file on a Windows machine, not just reading it in the uh, in the video app. So, Michael, you might be able to speak to the history of that. Of, you know, it took took a while. Uh, I think you know what were some of the first really, the first few ProRes encoders on Windows. Because at one point there weren't many. 
Right. I, I'd almost look at Adobe as being almost the the end of the sentence, so to speak. Um, Apple obviously wanted you to buy their big silver dongles back in the day or their black canisters. And, uh, and they wanted you to have to get to the Mac OS uh, if you wanted to use ProRes because it required you to buy their hardware because you can't virtualize the Mac OS uh, on non-Apple hardware. And so what Apple started doing is licensing the ability to encode ProRes on hardware devices. So you started seeing things like AJA's Key Pro uh, and other uh, what we call baseband encoders, uh, encoders that are taking signals from uh, an SDI feed or a component or composite feed. And you could encode that on the hardware level because that wasn't going to eat into Apple's business, right? Because that's not a computer in the traditional sense that we're used to a desktop and working with uh, uh, tools. And, and then, let me interrupt yeah. one quick second and say sure. the Key Pro was a watershed moment in this in this sort of theme because that was was encoding right to ProRes that we could easily and quickly edit off of. You could put those things in trucks. You could pump you know a lot of stuff into them, and it gave us like a you know in essence a um, to use the word essence, it gave us a hard drive that we could pull out that had the meat that had the shoot on it basically then you could then plug in copy the file right over and go right to work and that was kind of a you know crazy thing when it when it came along and it was fantastic it was also the tail wagging the dog a little bit because if you were getting folks to record into ProRes, well, then it kind of made sense for them to edit back in the day in, in inside Final Cut Pro Classic, right? Final Cut Pro uh, uh, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. This is true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, what then happened is uh, a, a software companies started approaching Apple and saying, we'd like to use, we'd like to decode ProRes or encode ProRes. Now, uh, let me back up for one second. Almost from day one, uh, maybe day two, you've been able to play back ProRes on Windows because QuickTime was available on Windows. So if someone gave you a file from a key pro, you could certainly play that on Windows. You just couldn't encode into it. Uh, and that caused uh, issues with handoffs uh, because if you were working in Avid on Windows, you'd have to get a ProRes file and then generate a DNX file. Or, uh, and then, or back at that time, it may have been a JFIF file, and then you'd have to hand that back. So you went through all these subsequent levels of transcodes. But uh, Apple selectively started licensing the ability to encode ProRes on Windows. And companies like Telestream and companies like uh, Route 6 and uh, some of the more outlying companies uh, were able to do it. And I don't know if there was a, a licensing fee. I'd imagine there was. Uh, but again, this wasn't taking away from Apple's market share because you still weren't uh, – uh, it wasn't replacing the need to have a Mac to edit Right, uh, I think I, I think Scratch uh, was an early uh, you know NLE color system that that had ProRes encoding, and then and then once um you, you know the Adobe Creative Suite Premiere After Effects encoder got well, you, that. You know, strangely enough, I remember uh, Blackmagic Fusion had encoding tucked away in it before Resolve even got it. It was kind of but no one knew about it. It was just kind of in there. I didn't even know how that came about, but. Um, it was just kind of, a, it was a weird thing because it wasn't a big fanfare. And I guess that makes sense because Apple didn't want to make a fuss about it, but uh, it just started happening with these different vendors. And what was really interesting is that, uh, you know, if you're a codec geek and there's only a few of us out there, um, you're probably familiar with the command line tool FFmpeg, which is an encoder decoder that forms the, it's open source and it forms the basis of a majority of the encoders out there. People right. just take this free open source and put their own skin on it and say, hey, I have a product. Um, you've been able to create an uh, encode and decode ProRes using FFmpeg on Windows for, I don't, I don't know, I don't think a decade, but close to it. But because it wasn't, sanctioned by Apple. Um, if on high-end broadcast uh, QC passes, the file could be rejected. Uh, there was no quality control. Um, and so that became a little bit of an issue. And I think what Apple finally realized is that ProRes has become so ubiquitous through the industry, uh, even though it's proprietary, uh, it's become so ubiquitous through the industry that we no longer need, we meaning Apple, 
uh, Apple no longer needed to say, well, this is gated and we're now yeah. not going yeah. to uh, we're not we're going to be selective about it. Um, so while they are being a little bit gatekeeping at this point, uh, it's so easily done on Windows at this point that it's it's just uh, proliferated through the Windows industry well, at this point. You know what I what, found uh, difficult when I came back because I've used Windows many times in the past for video and it was just really in the last couple of years that I kind of had to make that trek back and I was so used to having QuickTime Player and then any QuickTime enabled software just had access to all the codecs that came with QuickTime including ProRes and the thing that I found confusing was hey I, here I am in Resolve and I can export to ProRes but now I'm in After Effects and I can't export to anything without Meteor and Coda and you know it, it's the, the codecs are now tied to the app right there's no magic repository that then becomes available to any QuickTime enabled client app because there is no QuickTime anymore on Windows. Is that correct? Well, you can still run QuickTime 7. Uh, yeah, obviously, if, if you're willing you, to, you know, risk the security flaws, right? Correct. Correct. I mean, QuickTime is, is for all intents and purposes, dead. It's legacy code. It's old code. It's been patched and limping along. And because uh, media has a very long uh, shelf life, uh, and folks who are still using content they shot uh, years or decades ago, that kind of lives on. The ghosts of that media kind of live on. Uh, and so it means that encoders that, as you pointed out, that were based on QuickTime um, now have resultant files that need the QuickTime app or the QuickTime libraries installed to actually decode that. Uh, and that's kind of what we're running into uh, now that QuickTime is gone and now that macOS has gone to Catalina. We got to back up a second uh, because we talk about ProRes, but we—I think we also, in this case, have to talk about Avid's DNxHD, yeah. which was which was around before ProRes, if I remember correctly. It was it was Avid's, uh, you know. And, and before we even do that, one thing that these codecs enabled—I mentioned the term uh, intermediate or mezzanine codec—is they they gave editorial a codec that was very easy to edit because if you had shot, uh, you know, whatever random camera, I think about how hard it was to edit with red R3, R3D files or H, you know, some H.264 flavors and things like that. It was often great, uh, it still is often great to convert the media into a format that is much better for editorial, meaning it's faster to edit with, the NLEs play better with it, and it's just overall um, much more, I use the term buttery smooth to, to be able to edit with. And was that the original intention of a ProRes and a DNX HD was to give us that uh, post-production friendly codec? I can't see any other reason for that coming out uh, because at the time ProRes came out, uh, we had tape-based codecs, right? We've had, we had the DVC Pro HD and, mm -hmm. and things that were more linear-based. Uh, as opposed to a digital format. All we really had were these outlying players uh, who had developed their own, um, uh, including Avid with their you know old ABVB codecs and then their J5 codecs. And, and none of those, uh, unless you got into the one-to-one -one or two-to-one, were not a good balance of quality and file size. Mm -hmm. um, Avid, you know, had the J5, so the 14 and 15 to 1, which were great for multicam and great for space, but you would never broadcast that. Mm -hmm. And so you had the 1 to 1s and 2 to 1s, but those were pretty fat codecs, if I recall. They were upwards of uh, 20 to 25 megabytes a second, uh, you know, 20 years ago. And yeah. that was Im immensely expensive to buy drives that could do that or have horsepower to actually do multiple angles of that. Well, and, and, and these... Uh Intermediate codecs, I believe they came around before HD HD came out. So it wasn't just a matter of we're going to make this to make editing HD easier. And I think that certainly was a byproduct of of having these things because I think what we saw, we saw a time where maybe computers and drives weren't fast enough to edit these codecs that came out of the camera. So we have these ProRes and, and DNX and we had Cineform at the time, you know, these, these intermediate codecs. And then we saw computers and hard drives get fast enough and powerful enough, we could edit a lot of these these um, camera codecs natively. You know, weird Sony formats, weird, I say weird, but they're just, you know, somewhat proprietary or, or not proprietary even, but like their, their own special uh, way they record H.264 in a Sony camera, for example. We're able well, to edit, wanna... edit those you know, without any kind of mezzanine codec. But then 4K comes along, and once again, we now are better off 
transcoding some of these big 4K, 8K files back to an intermediate codec. One of the things I, I don't want to ignore is is around the 2005 era where um, we had one of our first, uh, shall we say, purely digital codecs. You know, we had XDCAM, and that was a, a particular watershed moment because it was not only pushing the industry to move off of tape acquisition, but to digital acquisition and then editing without having to re-ingest. Uh, and that was just a massive moment in the industry because we no longer needed to have tape back cameras, mm. uh, nor did we have to have a deck in the bay to ingest from. Yeah. It was that, all. We can, do we thank Sony for that? Is that was that Sony's? Sony, yeah, that was XDCam. That was XDCam. I think fifteen, twenty five, thirty five, and fifty, if memory serves. Wow. Yeah, and those yeah. are still still around, I believe, aren't they? Yeah. The the good thing about the XDCam format is that. Uh, you know, Sony makes a lot of different products and, and they also had their Blu-ray technology and they go hand in hand. So Sony had developed a, an entire uh, uh, roadmap for uh, codecs, resolution, increased data rates and how that played into single layer Blu-rays and dual layer Blu-rays uh, Blu and, and how long it would take to get to that level. So they and then they also developed their own um, um, sticks, their uh, S by S cards, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, so they had a whole roadmap for the next 10 years to get money from consumers at every level, uh, new cameras, new card media, new storage. Uh, so they, they planned it very well. Yeah. Hey, so uh, is it safe? Sorry, go ahead. Safe to say that uh, DNX or ProRes overtook DNX HD. I think it is safe to say that because we see a lot more. And there's lots of DNX HD out there, but uh, I think ProRes did sort of eclipse it. And I'm just wondering what Michael thinks is why did ProRes seem to take over, whereas DNX HD on on you know online first, in the world first, did not take over the way ProRes did. I think there's a couple reasons. I first there's the, there's the sex factor, and and yes, you can have sexiness with codecs, and and by and large, wah, Avid, wah, wah. Avid by and large has not been sexy for a long time. Uh, Apple was cool, right? Apple uh, at this point, you know, Steve Jobs had come back a few years prior. They were killing it with iMacs. Uh, they they were the new sexy. They also had Final Cut Pro. They also partnered with third party uh, devices like AJA. Uh, to capture into ProRes over FireWire. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, remember FireWire? So that certainly had uh, a lot more um, push in the industry. And at that point, uh, although Avid had a larger market share, market share than it does now, it was still predominantly uh, uh, higher end and feature film and television. And uh, because that was a smaller sector of the industry, uh, more people gravitated towards ProRes. So I, I want to I want to just back up a little bit on the uh, DNX HD. So just I, I think this would be helpful just to have some. I don't know if you guys can do this, but some practical wisdom here. So when I look at ProRes codecs, it's it's for the most part pretty straightforward. You've got ProRes Proxy, you've got ProRes LT. Then you've got your 422, your 444, your 4444. And if you understand what those things mean, it's those, those are pretty simple to understand. When I go to uh, the Avid Codex, I've got like, it seems like 20 DNX HDs, another 20 options for DNX HR. I have no idea what I should be picking. So is Here there is any, yeah, some kind of practical roadmap for what matters? This is uh, another case of Avid being screwed. And it's by no fault of Avid. And, and let me explain that because I'm not an Avid apologist, but let me kind of explain this, is that Avid has always been in the professional market. And it's been for people who need to create and for people who can, yeah, and, and who need to be technical. If you look at what DNX was called when it came out, it was DNX HD, and then it was a number. That number was the data rate. That made it really easy for any engineer or any editor who knew anything about data rates or storage space to say, oh, DNX 145, boom, I know how much that takes up. It wasn't sexy, and that's what Apple capitalized on because right. who cares about 145 or 36? <laughs> oh, it's not 36 if it's 24, if it's 30 frames, then it's 45. No, it was, here's uh, uh, ProRes 422, here's 422 HQ, high quality. And, and then, then when... Yeah. Go ahead. Go. Well, I was just going to say, and then we went to DNX HR. Does that mean we just ignore HD forever, or what was that all about? 
Well, and see, that's the funny part because I think Avid realized, wow, you know what? Maybe there's something to not having these numbers. So let's start. Let's move to uh, LB and uh, which is low bandwidth and and uh, uh, SQ. I'm sorry. SQ standard quality. Standard quality, but that of course then was in complete opposition to what they had been pushing for the last seven or eight years. All right. <laughs> so now you have to deal with uh, that and. Uh, if we look at the other side of the coin, DNxHR can capture um, at the same rough data rates as DNxHD. It's like DNxHD, but for larger frame sizes. So then you had companies like Adobe trying to make up their mind as how they're going to display those DNx codecs in their encoder. So there was a time when Avid changed what it looked like inside Media Composer, and then Avid came along and had, or then Adobe came along and had both. Then they changed it to DNxHR. So now you have all these legacy workflows that were used to using DNx145. Now it's called DNxR, DNxHR, something else, and it caused more creations or uh, errors. So. Avid was kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, as far as I'm concerned. Well, and if you look, if you look in uh, Adobe Media Encoder, for example, it, it is kind of funky because it's a world now that's trying to sort of keep track of kind of everything. Because if you look in your like your preset browser browser of Media Encoder, I'm sorry, preset browser of Adobe Media Encoder, you have a DNX HD MXF option and you have a DNX HR MXF option. So you've, you, it kind of muddy the waters yeah. even more because it, get a little, it gets a little bit more confusing. That's so you're looking under the, the broadcast tab. But, you know, to help uh, when you go into the ProRes, when you just see the basics of, you know, 422HQLT, but of course now going back to wrappers in uh, Media Encoder, for example, you can now wrap your ProRes, either as a QuickTime, which would be a .mov, or an MXF wrapper, which would be a .mxf. So I think this is a case in point why this discussion, as nerdy and unsexy as it is, is important for yeah. this, well, for, for what we you know, do, who, because we're, there's we're, a lot of confusion. We're already talking here. Michael, you know, is an expert on this stuff, and it's not an easy answer, right? Like, if someone says, well, which codec do I use? It's There's not a simple answer. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, I, you know, I, I like to use examples of like, what is your, it's kind of your workflow and your, your ultimate in deliverable, uh, you know, when it comes to what are you going to use while, while you edit? I mean, for delivery, it's pretty simple as that you need to get your specs from what you are delivering to, um, if it's YouTube, then we know we can deliver lots of things. But, you know, if you are, if you, ha I, for example, the job I'm working on now, it was a 10 camera shoot, or, you know, we probably captured 30 to 40 hours times 10 cameras. So it's, it is a ton of media. And um, we transcoded everything to ProRes LT because we were trying to find a good balance between uh, editability for 10 streams of multicam and file size. Yeah. So ProRes HQ would have just been insane, you know, because this is all at 4K. So while LT was a ton of media, it kind of gave us a good balance and let us do easily do 10 streams of, uh, of multicam off, you know, a moderately fast drive. And that's, you can never do that, just pulling the cameras, pulling the footage out of a, you know, Sony FS7. It just would, would you know, the we tried it, the machine would just totally, even Final Cut 10, they can play back tons of streams really, really well, choked even after a couple of uh, couple of seconds. Yeah. That's why those codecs are good. Yeah, I, I use LT when, as a, whenever I'm doing a, a witness camera for a motion capture session because I can just hit record on the thing and I know it's still going to be a modest file, and, and, but still completely readable. Uh, for whatever I'm trying to see in the scene. So it is amazing. Uh, you know, it's good that we have the variation, but it's obviously a frustrating experience if you're trying to figure out what the heck you should actually be using and you're not being given very specific delivery specs. Well, it, it can be. And, and one question uh, that Michael can possibly help answer, and this was asked on, on Twitter, was talking about the idea of 4444 versus 422 and 4224 and 420, which and are all sort of... What's that? And if you, if, I don't know if, if anything still does four one one, but that oh, was, information, uh, yeah, yeah. But like you know, that's that's the like the subsampling information in the in the uh, you know in the um, image itself. But then you look at ProRes, you go to pick your ProRes, you see there are oh they're all called ProRes four two two except for the one that's called ProRes four 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 four. So that uh, adds to the confusion in, in my yeah. humble humble opinion. It it does, and, and it all speaks to quality. 
right? And and uh, I'll try and distill it down so I don't put everyone to sleep. But uh, we accomplish the 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 getting the visible spectrum that we can see. Uh, into a digital format, we do we do that by chroma subsampling. We apply a codec, or we encode it into a codec, and then we choose our chroma subsampling. Uh, and uh, you know, drop that term at your next party, and I swear you'll have an easy exit, <laughs> right? Um, chroma subsampling is a way of a, that a computer looks at a cluster of pixels. Uh, then the computer determines a way to compress those pixels down so they can later be decompressed uh, in a way that's useful to the end user. Which is what uh, a codec is doing. Codec is short for compressor decompressor. Correct, correct. And the way that those uh, cluster of pixels are sampled uh, is called chroma subsampling, uh, and that's where why we have a ratio, uh, which is in three parts. You know, we have the four 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 or four two zero. It's a way of representing the quality of the media uh, and how it was sampled from the original footage. Um, so if you see something like 444, well, that's going to be the highest quality you're going to get. Uh, if you happen to come across a 4444, well, that's the highest quality you're going to get, plus a fake alpha channel that allows uh, transparency. Uh, and uh, a lot of motion graphics users are going to use that. And, and that was a was was that ever a thing before Apple ProRes 4444? No, you had to use the animation codec was pretty much the only way to get around that in a in an MOV file anyway. Yeah, so I just want to, just from the visual effects side, I want to add a, a little bit to this because, uh, first of all, the reason that the first four is what we used to have with black and white television. So when, when TV first came out, we had weighted luminance black and white signal. And then rather than uh, cause riots across America uh, and make people buy new color TV sets, they added two subcarrier components that carried the color information. And it turns out that the human perceptual system, we 59% uh, of our sense of contrast comes from green light, or at least that's what uh, the, the NAB engineers came up with, I think. And so as long as you keep really high resolution in your luminance detail, that's why that's four, you can have essentially half the amount of pixel information in the chroma, the color information, and the average human observer won't tell the difference. Uh, and 420 is a slightly different scheme, but that's why we can, you, you can throw 422 up there and you're going to be hard pressed, especially among the male population who have an inferior color vision to women, you're going to be hard pressed to tell the difference between 422 and 444. The reason why 444 becomes so important is that anything uh, mechanical that we need to do to pixels is going to cause uh, quality degradation. So, for example, if you're shooting green screen, uh, you have to key off those half-sized pixels in 422. Uh, so you're going to get some weird jaggies on your edges compared with pure 4444. Uh, likewise, there are certain tracking operations if you're trying to match move or lock a logo onto something, things like that. Um, if you're if you're going down to 422 or 420 you're going to have less precision in the ability to track that. So that's really, you know, at least in my side of the world, that's why the, the higher numbers become so important. More, more is better. Yeah, but bigger, obviously. In a, in, in, in a sense, because if, you're, if, you're, uh, if you shoot with a DSLR and you want to transcode it for edit, you don't want to transcode to Apple ProRes 4444 because in that case, you would not be gaining anything in your low-quality uh, low-quality origination media, yeah. which I think some people don't quite always understand. Right. There are reasons to transcode to make editorial easy. And I would often uh, <clears throat> ask people who don't understand this to to try this uh, little game here. Excuse me. Um, if you could ever have like a timeline full of, you know, an hour's worth of R3D red media or an hour's worth of um, DJI phantom footage or, you know, any of the DJI drone footage, and you ever try to just scrub around it with your NLE, it's going to be choppy. It's going to take time for the for the, uh, for the the viewer to update. It, you know, your playhead's not going to follow your mouse as you scrub around really quickly. But if you could transcode all that into uh, uh, intermediate codec like ProRes or DNX HD, it could be LT, it could be 44444, you're instantly going to see how much faster, more responsive just scrubbing around that timeline is. And that is a good a good indicator, like a physical way to see exactly how much nicer working with, with a good intermediate codec for editorial 
editorial is just because it, it does everything so much faster and it takes the computer much less time to um, process something as simple as clicking from one frame to the other. And That's feeling really it like point. that. Yeah. yeah, when you, if you can ever feel it, feel it like. I used to keep a little drive for when I was teaching with an example of this, and you could plug it up and, and have a student scrub around with the mouse. And they'd be like, oh, my gosh, I now see how much better you say that, you know, how much better it quote-unquote feels when you're editing. And it really is something you have to kind of feel to be able to um, do it. Now, let's, what, let's, sorry, it's just as, I've actually got a question for Michael on – so. This is obviously the color space, but the other big thing, especially as our crops of digital cameras are increasing in dynamic range, bit depth is another huge detail, which is how much dynamic range you can store. Are there, uh, are these codecs, uh, do they have fixed bit depths or is there kind of a latest codec fits all and has a lot of, uh, you know, 12 bit or 16 bit? I, I just don't know. I'm not up. That's something I'm completely ignorant of. Newer codecs definitely have those. Uh, for example, ProRes uh, 4444, uh, I believe, is uh, 12, uh, as okay. a, is 12 bit, if I'm not mistaken. All, yeah. uh, natively, the ProRes codex family was uh, 10 bit, and then the, the latest one is 12. Uh, I believe the DNX HR, uh, one of the higher versions, I believe, is also 12 bit. Uh, and then there are obviously cameras that have proprietary codecs by the manufacturer of the camera. Yeah. Surprisingly, and so there, yeah. and it's. I'm, I'm guessing it's a linear 12 bits. So if you want to really get the dynamic range, you're going to have to put some kind of logarithmic uh, LUT on it going into the encode, right? And you, you bring up a good point because there's obviously the kind of uh, raw data that you can get from a sensor, which has no processing at all, which isn't even a video uh, stream at that point. It's just raw data. And then you have the concept of log, which is uh, processed data, but a curve is applied to the gamma. So you can then extrapolate that in post and get more latitude than you would traditionally have shooting in a, uh, uh, shall we say, antiquated color space like a, like a Rec. 709. Right. I'm I'm looking through Media Encoder at the comments on on like ProRes and DNX HR, and uh, it does it says that DNX HR. I'm not seeing any 12 bits. It's saying those are all. Um, it's showing those as being as being 10 bit, like mm. DNX HR uh, 444. No, the high quality. The DNX HR HQ uh, is 12 bit. Well, I would think, yeah, it seems like uh, maybe it's a typo. <laughs> it uh, it possibly 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 could be. Um, so check check your uh, check your um, your user's manual for um, for that. Um, so a couple of questions that came in over Twitter, and this this one was asked a couple of times. What do we do as we're moving into the future with old legacy codecs, old media? You know, we've seen this issue where where um, Apple was saying they're uh, you know not going to support legacy quote unquote legacy codecs moving into Catalina and beyond. What advice do we have for people to deal with the future? Dead well, silence. there's a couple. No, there's a couple things you can do. Uh, one of them is uh, create an old boot drive and always have an old bootable drive for you to get in and, and export things or, or manipulate them if need be. Uh, that's always a safe uh, way to go about things. Uh, convert your content, which I know is an astronomical task in some cases, to a more, shall we say, open source uh, or to a more stable, non-proprietary codec so you can use it later on. Like what? Uh, I'm sorry? Like what? Well, uh, DNxHR. I mean, that's that's a SMPTE standard. DNxHD and DNxHR are SMPTE standards. Okay. So even if Avid goes away, that's going to be around. Uh, ProRes, that's Apple. That's Apple's standard. If Apple were to fold, which, come on, let's be realistic, probably won't happen, but it's still theirs. It's not open source. Mm -hmm. um, there are there are the concept of image sequences, right? We look at motion JPEG or uh, J2K, uh, as it's commonly known, um, and that is a open standard. So that's not going to go anywhere. If we look at uh, the U.S. Library of Congress, uh, they standardized, I think, back in 2000 on JPEG, on J2K for their still images and for any motion uh, they've standardized on motion JPEG in a lossless way using motion JPEG. Um, but most people don't want to hear that because it's a lot of effort and it can take up a lot of disk space. Mm -hmm. Well, also just to clarify, and uh, you know, one of the 
comments on Twitter was, uh, you know, Catalina's going to kill all this off. But surely, uh, you know, if FFmpeg uh, is 64-bit compliant and can run on Catalina, how it interfaces with the codex is up to it, not up to Catalina, right? So if it wants to interface with 32-bit codex, it's more than welcome to. Correct. Apple just said, look, we've supported this long enough. We're no longer going to build in 32-bit support. So then it fell on, or I'm sorry, build in 64-bit support for 32-bit apps yeah, yeah. <laughs> that are not compatible with 64-bit OS. So you have now applications like Avid uh, and Resolve and uh, uh, most of the Creative Cloud apps, if not all of them, that have said, look, we've built our own decoders so we can reference those files and still utilize them. But you got you to think, well, how long is that legacy going to yeah. uh, hold out for? Well, you take something like Adobe Premiere that kind of put its stake in the ground on saying, "Hey, we can support in you know any any most any codec and most any um, you know, wrapper." Do you, do we is it safe to say that in the future something like Premiere will always be able to read everything, so you don't worry you don't have to worry about transcoding into into DNxHR or J2K. No, I in fact, I believe Adobe's already dropped support for a couple formats over the years in various revisions. You are uh, I think for a while they were using MK, they were decoding MKV, and I think there were quality issues, so they stopped that. Obviously, there's the the whole Dolby issue, so I mean that was, uh, I believe that stopped some support. Yes. Uh, so I I think it would be uh, irrational to believe that uh, Adobe is going to be the Swiss Army knife. Uh, of media playback for decades to come. Uh, I just don't think that's realistic. What about codecs of the future? H.265 is a thing that we hear talked about quite a lot. And someone on Twitter asked about the HAP codec, H-A-P, which I've never heard of, so I don't know anything about that one. Uh, but H.265 certainly is, uh, it, you know, its support is not broad yet across the board like H.264, but it's certainly uh, the future, I would think. Well, what rubs me the wrong way about 265 is that it's still in the vein of 264, meaning it's uh, compressed. So while it may be visually lossless or you maybe just lose a little bit of quality, you still can't manipulate it later, later on. And a lot of archival codecs, a lot of codecs that you'll want to store things in, you may want to edit that later on. You may want to do an effect pass or, uh, or, or color work to it. And if you do that with 265, it's going to degrade. What we also look at is uh, 265, you, if you try to utilize it right now, you have to have a, a pretty beefy computer. Mm -hmm. um, 265 is just like XDCAM was back in 05 or 264 was back at that time when you still need a machine to really chunk through that. When we look at the HAP codec, which is um, uh, optimized for graphics cards, meaning it's going to offload as much of the decode to your GPU or graphics card as humanly possible, whereas uh, a lot of other codecs are still walking that line between codec, uh, between GPU and CPU usage. Uh, so the HAP codec is um, a great codec. It really hasn't been adopted in uh, creative editorial post-production. Is it uh, just I've a playback thing mainly? Uh, well, there's no native support. Uh, if you want to use it inside Adobe, for example, you have to use After Codex, or I think there's another third-party plugin. I know Unreal Engine and a lot of video game uh, 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 environments have been using it. I believe it stemmed from a live uh, video DJ software. Hmm. Uh, so that's oh, where it kind of got its its roots from. I think the company was Vidvox, if memory serves. Hmm. Um, uh, and uh, so I'm, uh, and the file sizes I've seen aren't too bad. It's kind of in line with ProRes 422. When you start getting into alpha, uh, codecs with alpha channels, you save a ton of space. But because it's not a widely adopted, and I hate to use the term standard because everyone's got a standard, but because it's not widely adopted in the creative editorial space, it's really difficult unless you have a closed workflow or closed ecosystem to start adopting something like that. Well, let's, let's talk for a second about, um, about proprietary codecs in a sense. Uh, Red's R3D format was their own unique uh, format that came up with a long time ago. You've got something like, um, I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to say, Air, I guess Airy Raw in a sense is a proprietary. That's Airy's own raw uh 
codec that they invented, um, Blackmagic RAW, in a sense. Is, I, I, I don't know if I hesitate to call RAW formats codecs, but I guess they are. Like that's, that's their, such, I'm sorry, their own I, thing. that annoys me to no end, the fact that it's called Blackmagic RAW when it's not RAW. It's what not about ProRes? Is ProRes RAW RAW? No, I don't believe ProRes uh, RAW is either. But it's but they would those well would in be some ways they can't right? they can't be if they're uh, not native to a camera right because they have no direct relation to the sensor voltages or any of that sort of stuff right I mean that's the ultimate thing about RAW it's the it's basically the direct interpretation of the electrical signal hitting the the uh, camera correct. sensor no processing correct well okay semantics aside then my <laughs> <boy>. um, <laughs> Every raw, Blackmagic raw, ProRes raw, R3D. Uh, I'm trying to think of some others that are tied to something more specific, as in red or as in airy. It, it, it seems to be there are a lot of those now. There used to, you know, used to be with every NAB, there were new formats coming out, and that seemed to kind of die down for a little while. But now it seems to be happening again with all the different uh, raw, not raw options out there. So I, I, I just don't know if we can ever move away from proprietariness when it comes to, to codecs. I don't yeah. think so. And the reason being is these codecs are, uh, or I should more appropriately say these formats, these raw formats uh, are tweaked to get the best out of the sensor that that manufacturer yeah. makes. So a raw codec on one, uh, or the raw format on one camera sensor is gonna vary greatly from the sensor on a different camera. And that's why you're seeing a lot of these raw formats, true raw formats, are proprietary to the manufacturer of the camera they have uh, or who they've licensed it from. Gotcha. I, I ask myself, or not myself, because I can't answer this, but in the, on the world, uh, outside of some super high-end applications in feature films or, or science or you know some kind of crazy uh, um, corporate uh, presentation type thing, most of the time, shooting right to ProRes would get you what you need, full stop. I I would I would have to disagree, <laughs> but only I would just say any visual effects sequence shoot raw because uh, it's so critical. If you lose the data, uh, again, it might be perceptually irrelevant. Uh, because the human eye may not know this difference, but if you're shooting anything that you actually have to do VFX work with, if you can afford it, I always say, please, please shoot raw. Because then that's why I said outside of the high end oh, work, did you? High -end that's workflows. not high end. The guys making indie films, come on, this. All right, whatever. <laughs> well, if hey, if the Revenant can shoot ProRes with the yeah. Airy, well, did it shoot ProRes with the Airy? Uh, what was that big thing? The LF 65 millimeter. If it's good enough for, I always think about um, Skyfall. I think was a famous one that shot in camera, uh, pro, you know, Airy ProRes, Alexa ProRes. It's like if it's good enough for that. But yeah, I agree. But there are reasons they are doing this. Outside, that, would, that would be I the guess, only thing. Manufacturers, yeah. you know, trying to make trying to make uh, more money. But I want to always think about what's easiest for post. I want to throw one more kind of sort of sci-fi thing there out there in terms of the future of Codex, and that is. The whole deep learning thing, because uh, you, you you said semantics before, but there you you could literally create a semantic codec. In fact, people already have where you can train a deep learning uh, model on a whole bunch of diff different objects, and then you can kind of send a message like uh, draw a tiger with cheekbones five inches apart uh, with uh, stripes this shade. I'm, I'm over generalizing, but you could give some very minimal information and then a deep learning algorithm could recreate that image on the fly on your uh, destination workstation or, or, you know, laptop or whatever. Now that that's going to require a massively trained, uh, deep learning, uh, uh, you know, piece of software and probably be way too heavy for any kind of computer alive today. But we could get to the point where, it's it's semantic compression. So we're actually saying it's this. Here are here are the facial landmarks on this actor for, to recreate the face, and this is their skin tone, and this is the lighting conditions. And so what what that would do is it would give us a crazy reduction in the actual data that needs to flow across a network to recreate the image. So you know what would take an a, an uncompressed AK image now, we could do for a fraction of the data transfer. 
but you're kind of then relying on the end client uh, AI to reconstruct the image faithfully. Um, but that's a whole area where I've already seen some stuff. Like it is pretty amazing. I've, I've seen the Tiger demo. They built a deep learning thing that can, I think with just a handful of bytes of, of memory sent can recreate a tiger. The only problem is it can only do tigers, you know? So if you've just got a tiger documentary, you're good to go. But, uh, but I do think that is something that uh, has to make its way into the whole compression space over the next couple of decades at least. Anyway, but I guess if they I, can if they can make it do a tiger, you just gotta tweak tweak yeah, you just gotta, whatever a little gotta, bit to make it do a rat. Yeah, you just gotta feed it enough stuff, and then I mean, and this is one of the things we haven't really talked about it. We've we brushed on it, but one of the trade offs with Codex is uh, the encode time. So it's okay typically if something takes a really crazy amount of time to compress to optimize it, but we usually want. Uh, the client receiving and playing back the video to not have to kick up to 20 cores just to be able to decompress it in real time. And that's the kind of trade-off. Some that's codecs are easier to decompress. Something like what, what I'm talking about here with deep learning, you would have to have some crazy hardware, you know, two or three graphics cards, you know, built in 2030 to probably actually run this thing in real time. I think you uh, you also bring something up that's very interesting, uh, Damien, is that when you start getting into, and I don't want to call it an EDL, but but I think you know what I'm where I'm what yeah. I'm talking about. When we start getting to these um, not visual representations but data representations, we now break away from the traditional frame methodology, and that means in the future we're no longer constrained by the boundaries of a frame. Yeah, uh, which means that uh, in the future. Uh, we're no longer a well. Twenty-four means means that that's film. That that's a standard, right? Yeah. That 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 gives us this kind of quality of, of theater experience. We're no longer going to be constrained by frames, and that means that we may be getting closer to audio levels of having you know forty-eight thousand samples a second. We now may have uh, individual smaller time increments than a frame that we can tweak, which will undoubtedly t uh, alter our storytelling as well as, of course, Damien's workload for visual effects. Yeah, that's I job security. I can't wait to see what I can't wait to see what <laughs> Ang Lee and Will Smith do with that. <laughs> you know what? I I have to say I've worked on some uh, just a little bit of forty-eight frame per second stuff. And it's in one sense it's great you got all this extra data, and in another sense it's terrifying because uh, you know visual effects is all smoke and mirrors. So I love being able to hide stuff in motion blur, and at 48 frames per second there's no hiding in the motion blur. <laughs> so you know all of that stuff is kind of terrifying. Uh, and in fact, that's really what uh, the early attempters I'm going to say rather than adopters of VR cinema discovered is shooting VR is impossibly expensive because there's no way to hide the crew. You can't easily just do practical lighting because if you do any of that sort of stuff, you have to spend you know, countless hours and days and, and uh, budgets in post painting out lights and other set pieces. And so you know, in the short term, that was just too impractical. There was no market for it anyway, but uh, you know, these are the things that uh, the machine learning stuff is, is definitely going to push our industry, I think, faster than we expect. Well, that's what uh, that's a good thing, pushing industries forward, because that's yeah. kind of where we got uh, how we got to HD. Uh, I remember uh, someone will we'll end on this one. There was a comment on Twitter asking about, um, let me go back and find it. It said, uh, make the new kids appreciate how good it is these days compared <laughs> to the vomit of HDV 1080i. <laughs> Days of the past, and that was eight. That was oh, high definition yeah. on many DV tapes, and it was a. Um, you know, it takes a lot of it takes a lot of sort of stumbles to get to where we are. You know, like shooting six uh, K on on an affordable camera and transcoding to ProRes and editing your whole show at six K. I mean, that's that's was unheard of, on you know back in not too long ago. And it's uh, as things change, it's um, we get some cool stuff out of it. Absolutely. Any any last words on Codex, or should we just call this done? Uh, you know, uh, what? I, I want to ask. Think, go ahead. Sorry, I just want to ask one quick question. Um, I'm curious, uh, Michael, what your take is on MKV. I mean, it's a it's a weird Russian open source sort of container, right? Um, it's got a lot of kind of underground 
adoption, but is it dead on arrival in terms of general usage? Well, I think what you're finding is that it's it's common for people who are pirating, uh, <laughs> or shall I say, archiving, archiving. their their Blu-ray discs. Right. Um, mm. So that that that's always been uh, uh, an issue. Uh, I think as uh, two six five uh, comes to maturity in terms of uh, speed processing availability, uh, we're going to see more uh, usage of that. Um, although there is something to be said for if you're already encoding, you know, two six four on a Blu-ray, what are you doing? Just bumping it up to two six five. So there's going to be discussions on on either end, but um, uh, I think MKV will be around for for at least a few more years um, while people are still buying physical discs. And and on that, real quick, uh, just for people who don't know, I think we can all assume that if you have to deliver a video to someone and you have no idea what their uh, technical savvy is and what kind of computer it is, probably the best advice these days is still an H.264 MP4. Would that be right? For what purpose? So just, just, just for... if you want to send someone a video to review, for example, like something that you pretty much guarantee they're not going to say, ah, it's, I got a black screen. Yep. Yeah. A 264, uh, excuse me, an MP4 wrapped H.264 yeah. codec would probably be the best way to go. But cool. there, if you're doing this in a corporate environment, there will be people who still say, I can't play that. I need a Windows Media file. Guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> just had that happen the other day. Oh, mercy. All right, gents. Well, that's uh, that was a good discussion. We just hit an hour there. Hopefully, this has been helpful, uh, you know, to some new people who maybe you're new in this video industry and editing and post production. But I think there's a few things I learned a few things in there as well. So hopefully, um, yeah. this this was helpful to someone somewhere. Until next time, uh, Damien, we'll see you soon. Michael, we'll, uh, we're going to chat soon about Bebop and what's going on with you guys in the world of cloud-based editing. So I'm going to go ahead and tag you right here on that. We'll Fantastic. talk about that soon. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. See you guys.